Welcome to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers to provide you with tips, tactics, and strategies so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. I'm your host, Kerry Shumway, a CPA, CFO for a brewery, and a former CFO for a beer distributor. I've spent the last 20 years using finance to improve financial results in our beer business. Now I'm helping other craft breweries to do the same. Are you ready to take your brewery financial results to the next level? Okay, let's get started. Today on the podcast, we hear from Jeremy Cowan, the founder of Schmaltz Brewing and Coney Island Brewing. Jeremy started these breweries, ran them, and ultimately sold them, and he shares his lessons learned along the way. We talk quite a bit about contract brewing and then some tips and tactics for you on how to lose less money in your brewery. It's not the most optimistic way to phrase this particular challenge, but it is very practical for those breweries out there that aren't profitable but are working to get there. Uh, Jeremy has some great advice to share on that topic. So for now, please enjoy this conversation with Jeremy Cowan. Just a quick word from today's sponsor, Arrived. Craft beer knows firsthand that the best ingredient is love. Arrive Point of Sale combines industry expertise, essential taproom tools, and a whole lot of love to make running your brewery even easier. Scale faster with Arrive's mobile all-in-one system that offers flight tools, digital card on file, and award-winning customer support. New customers get 10% off hardware or other startup costs when you visit. So just visit arrive.com slash craftbrewerryfinance. That's A-R-R-Y-V-E-D dot com forward slash craftbrewerryfinance. Launch with Arrive before August 1st, 2023 to claim your 10% off. And you can learn more at arrive.com slash craftbrewerryfinance. Hey, Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here, Carrie. It is great to have you here. So why don't you give folks a little bit of background on you personally and professionally? What do you got? What's, uh, give us your history. <laughs> sure. Nothing like a 30-second elevator pitch on 27 years in the craft beer world. Um, both coasts, uh, up and down, I started Schmaltz Brewing and Hebrew Beer in 1996 in San Francisco in my apartment uh, in the Mission District. And uh, I was a contract brewer from the very beginning, which I've over the years had a really fun time playing with and writing some articles and giving some presentations about and defending and not defending. And it's all fine. It's totally good. Spent 17 years being a contract brewer and uh, six years with our own brewery in upstate New York, um, which came a little bit later uh, in the in-between periods. Uh, I was based in San Francisco for many years. I then also was based in Brooklyn, New York, and we brewed our beer in the beginning in Northern California, and then for many years in upstate New York and Saratoga Springs when I lived in Brooklyn. Um, expanded the Hebrew beer brand. Uh, for my 10th anniversary, we had three 10%, you know, quote, extreme beers from the glory days of extreme beer for beer advocate and dogfish and stone and some really, really amazing experiences with uh, the craft beer world. And we got kind of known for beers like uh, Bittersweet Lenny's RIPA and Funky Jubilation and our Jubilation series for our for my anniversary every year. And um, then I was based in upstate New York and we built a brewery in Clifton Park. Um, that was in 2013. 
uh, ran that for six years and uh, five or six years, sold it after five and ran it for another year. Sold it to some friends from Queens, it's single cut brewing. And um, during that interim period as well, I started a brand called Coney Island Craft Loggers uh, in 2006, seven and eight. And uh, we made a line of wonderful, fun, wild, interesting loggers in an era where loggers, craft loggers was still really not, not much of a movement, so to speak. But we had a great time with the Circus Sideshow folks and the people who loved them all over the country. Um, and it was an amazing time. I, I traveled around the country. I, people have heard this before. I didn't have an apartment for five years and literally went market to market and wholesaler to wholesaler and Whole Foods to Whole Foods and beer bar to beer bar and uh, sold beer all over the country. We were distributed in about 35 or 40 states. Um, we, at our peak, were at about 9,000, 10,000 barrels. Um, my Coney Island brand that I started, I ended up selling that, most people know, to Boston Beer, 2013. And um, they run Coney Island to this day, a cool 10-barrel brewery out at the ballpark in Coney Island in South Brooklyn. And I have a now um, uh, some really fun stuff. I was able to actually sell the Schmaltz Brewing brand to a young rabbi student in New York City last year, which I'm really excited about. And um, Jesse Epstein is a wonderful guy. He's 26. Uh, it was 26 years ago that I started the brewery and um, I was 26 when I sold it. So that's kind of cool. Um, so he's going to do a lot of events and we're going to start thinking about what to do with Schmaltz. I'm still a, a minority partner, but he's going to run the show. And I have a little tiny beer brand called Alphabet City Brewing Company that's um, brewing with Captain Lawrence Brewing in Elmsford. But we distribute that through Greenpoint Beer Works and my friend Ed Raven um, down in Brooklyn. And I have a tasting room still in upstate New York called 518 Craft in Troy, New York, historic downtown Troy. So still lots of fingers in the beer world, um, a little bit of assets in the beer world, and uh, been doing consulting for small brewers and um, some businesses that want to sell to brewers. And I've been doing some projects for friends in the industry and I'm enjoying the little bit of a change from having 40 wholesalers around the country and a team of 30 people. and right before COVID, I really was lucky. I got to offload the bulk of my overhead and fixed costs um, in a very, very lucky turn of uh, events and been enjoying the low overhead lifestyle of one bartender at a time and talking to some friends about great craft beer once in a while. And it's been really cool. So happy to be here to talk to you about a lot of different fun things that are going on in craft and, and our our uh, roles in the industry and our thoughts on on how we can help people. Mm, that's great, and you know, sound like a serial entrepreneur there in the beer industry. It's great stuff. <laughs> people go, wait, how long has it been? I got well, twenty six, twenty seven years, but it's been lots of chapters. I mean, some folks may remember I wrote a book a little while ago for my thirteenth anniversary. It's called Craft Beer Bar Mitzvah. And, um, and I put it even in that, even then, I mean, it wasn't a straight line. It wasn't like I was a home brewer. Uh, I won an award. I got a small brewery. I won more awards. I then kept going and going and going. And next thing you know, I'm, you know, 2,200,000 barrel brewery. It never was like that. It was twists and turns and moving and different business models and different people and by myself. And then finally having some staff and moving coasts and then moving up upstate, um, so that's been 
really interesting. And through the course of that, one of the things I really like, I know we're going to get a chance to talk about it today is the models have been very different and I've had to adapt and adjust over and over again. So I've seen a fair amount of different things, you know, from brand development and production to distribution, sales and marketing, to financing. I have a lot of different financing um, directions over the years. So I always, I look at it more as chapters in craft beer as opposed to one kind of long linear trajectory. Mm, I like that. Yeah, we'll have to say, I mean, there's so many things, directions that we go and topics. Um, Maybe let's start with, I want to kind of, I'll just kind of tee up the listener here in terms of where we maybe want to focus is, you know, you've started, run, and sold these businesses. So I'm going to come back to this question, but I I would like to kind of hear your kind of lessons learned on those. Um, But I kind of want to, I kind of want to start with contract brewing. It's fairly granular topic. And I think it's relevant for a lot of folks. And, you know, I think it's interesting that, you know, that you were a contract brewer from the beginning and it's really been an area of expertise for you. So, so I think my first question is maybe just give people, most folks know what it is, but they don't, yeah. maybe they've not done it. So they don't know the, so what are the, how does it work? Let's start basic, go intermediate, and then maybe we'll get an advanced in terms sure. of what it is. Yeah. Well, that's kind of how I, I got into it in the first place, even less than basic, absolutely <laughs> knowing, knowing nothing. And people will love this. And I sometimes like to date myself when I first looked into contract brewing, the way I found all the breweries, um, that were around San Francisco was I looked in the yellow pages and I looked under breweries, (laughs) which you obviously some different tools these days. So my idea in the very beginning was, um, and most people, if they've ever heard me give a talk or or know anything about Schmaltz and Hebrew have heard how it started. It was an inside joke with some friends from school, but then I was really committed to later in my young adult life, um, finding a way to participate in the Jewish community with a beer called Hebrew. And that was my vehicle to do it. So for me, I didn't come at it as a brewer. I definitely didn't come at it as a business person. I didn't know anything about business. I was a English major. Um, I worked for arts organizations. Um, I didn't have any money. And so that was the perfect way to be a contract brewer. Um, It has been a debate and there's, endless opinions which are all in my mind pretty valid but for me it worked out um i I had an idea i went to a small brewery i said can you make me 30 cases of hebrew beer for hanukkah of 1996 and um simon the brewer there at the time who would later go on to be the the corporate brewer for pyramid very successful brewer um really talented guy he said no i can't make you 30 cases i can make you 100 i was like oh man brutal well let's try it i'm sure i'll have 70 cases of beer left over after hanukkah i'll drink them for you know saint patrick's day and easter and everything else so it was a fun fun experiment um and the the contract model honestly even though that was such a tiny example um it had the elements that go on to this day whether you're contracting you know 100 cases or 10,000 cases at a time um who's going to do the branding who's going to do the packaging who's going to do the ingredients, who's going to do the production, um, who's going to do the packaging on the on the backside, not just the raw material packaging. And then what are you going to do with it once you get it? Are you putting it in your own warehouse? Are you putting it in somebody else's warehouse? Are you going to drive it around yourself? Are you going to give it to a wholesaler? And then, you know, how are you going to grow the brand? 
how, how are you going to pay for all of that? What's your sales and marketing strategy? So for contract brewing, and I've done a bunch of talks lately with some friends in the industry and over the years, the model is, I'd say, mostly straightforward for three different versions. And the, the spectrum on the one far side is you as the contract brewer are going to do almost everything. You're going to be responsible for the risk. You're going to buy the raw materials and all the packaging. And, you know, you can even do the brewing yourself. Um, so you, you could do almost just about everything as a contract brewer. And then the other end of the spectrum is the brewery is going to do everything. They're going to order all the materials. They're going to maybe take your recipe or they'll maybe make a recipe for you. And you're going to pay them either for the whole batch as some lump sum, or you're going to pay them either per case um, or per barrel. They might want you to pay them at different stages of the process. And then the question is, what do you do with it? Who do you sell it to? Um, so those, those kind of ends of the spectrum for contract brewing, that's the production side. And then there's everything in between. And that's where one brewery might say, listen, we want to do all of the, we're good at what we do. We know what we're doing. We know how much beer we're going to give you. We want you to pay us by the case, but you got to buy this wacky label that you thought was so cool. And it costs three cents extra per label, or you got to buy the cardboard or you got to put up the, you know, up charges and the setup fees and stuff like that. All the way down to, listen, we've got stainless steel and a floor and a ceiling and you get a, you come do everything you want and just kind of essentially rent it from us. Mm -hmm. So contract brewing is pretty dynamic. Um, there are lots of rules of thumb and there's enormous ways to be successful. Um, the bottom line is if you don't have the capital or you don't have the desire or you don't have the talent or the experience, then contract brewing is a way that you can be good at something. I happen to be good at writing punchlines for beer labels. Um, I was pretty good at PR. I kind of had a knack for that. I, what turned out to be marketing. And I didn't know that I had a knack for things that called sales. And I didn't know that at the time. So that's what I ended up focusing on instead of when we built the brewery in upstate New York. And I actually ended up contract brewing for tons of other people. And, and then it turned out I had a real appreciation for the pain and suffering and opportunity and, and business model that, that really worked well. Cause we went from contract brewing for 2000, we did about 2000 barrels the first year we were open and we contract brewed about 30,000 barrels four years later. Um, so those models on the production side for the producer of contract beer also have their kind of pain points and opportunity points. And it usually ties into, you know, how your operation is, how your staff is, how your purchasing supply chain is. A lot of it's how much storage you have, how many docks you have, um, how much extra slack there is in your organization. It's one thing to have more fermenters, but if you don't have a warehouse guy who can double the amount of pallets coming in and out, you don't have a administrative support to be able to increase your, your number of transactions, then it's very difficult. Um, and the margin question is very broad. It can depend on how you price contract beer for other people or how you, how you cost contract beer for yourself. There are some pretty big um, variances. So that's the stuff I ended up really enjoying. I liked the business model of it eventually. In the beginning, I just wanted to have a hilarious, delicious beer called T-Brew. And, and I enjoyed that element of it as well. That's funny. Well, you mentioned a few minutes ago that you're enjoying 
you know, being overhead free. And I think you said like fixed asset free or something yeah. like this, because, because that can be a real burden from a financial standpoint. Oh my God. Yeah. Do you, do you think the contract model is still relevant today um, as it was before or, or what, what, if anything has changed in that regard? Mm-hmm. Well, it's a good question because a lot of my clients have asked, should they contract brew for other people or should they have other people contract brew for them? And, um, and I've had a bunch of those conversations with even some bigger breweries. We, we have a group that I'm part of, and we did a kind of informal seminar for an hour about what that looked like from people who were doing some of it and other people who wanted to get into it. And, you know, the crazy thing, I mean, you know, this, the crazy thing about craft beer is you, you, you ask three or four brewers, how do you do anything? How do you check your CO2? How do you package your uh, how do you get your packaging um inventory straight how do you uh forecast your cash flow and you get 12 answers and all of them are legit potentially legitimate and potentially the right direction so for contract brewing i kind of feel like it's the same thing i mean there is a question of how much beer there is right and how much capacity there is and right now there is more capacity than there is beer being sold we know that I mean, you can see it every day. There's somebody talking about looking for contract brewing clients or making their facility available for contract brewing. Now, that doesn't then match up with who needs contract brewing because there's a lot of quiet contract brewing going on. Some of it was so cool. I mean, when brands like, you know, McKellar and Evil Twin and Grimm and Skyser, amazing brewers, sweet, uh, uh, um, Brian, um, uh, it's still water. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> they were changing contract brewing. You know, we called it them. They called it gypsy brewing or partner brewing or whatever um, we wanted to call it. But it was so cool. I mean, and those beers were amazing. And in the, that was one of the reasons we built the brewery in Clifton Park was in 2009, 10 and 12, 11, when everybody was up 30 to 80 percent a year. And there wasn't enough capacity. I mean, you, I was pretty well known for contract brewing at that point, and I didn't have very many options. Um, and that was one of the reasons we built ours. We were working with five or six different yeasts. We had 400 barrels of sour and, and fresh barrel-aged beer. We had 16 SKUs and nine-year rounds. I mean, it was kind of a crazy portfolio, and to try to contract brew, that was very challenging. 2013, 14, 15, and 16, all of a sudden, Brew Hub opened and Sleeping Giant opened and Dorchester and Beltway and um, Two Roads. Oh, my God. I mean, amazing, amazing brewers that are really high quality and in some time, in some ways, higher quality than you were going to get in those 10 years previously. And so now, I mean, it's a little hard for me to understand if somebody has the cash and has a real hook and a brand if what they really want to do is grow a brand, do they really want to put more stainless steel in a warehouse anywhere that has to be trucked somewhere that then has to have those products trucked elsewhere? Do they really want to put utilities on the wall and in the floor. If what you really have is a brand and connections around the country and you have a possibility of creating value through growing your company through more like vision and execution, then contract brewing to me makes a ton of sense. There's great breweries out there, world like the very best breweries you could contract brew with, which are amazing. 
Mitch Steele's contract brewing for people. I mean, come on, who has access? We, nobody had access to somebody like that 15 years ago. So I'm really excited about the opportunities. I think the challenge is matching up the vision with the capacity and then making sure that capacity then has process and pricing and costs um, and, and logistics and because um, that's where I succeeded, I think, in growing my own contract production business was I really understood how to generate more customers for myself or our own brewery. And I always could tell, well, this is a great opportunity or this is not a great opportunity. This is a good fit for what we do. This is not a great fit for what we do. So I think it's totally relevant. Um, some small breweries you know, if you, if you built a brewery that had 1500 barrels of capacity and you're doing really well in your home market, and maybe you could expand to the next market, or maybe you could get into the ballpark and double your capacity or get into, you know, Kroger Republic's fill in the blank, Safeway. Should you really buy the next door warehouse and put in more utilities? Maybe if you have a long-term vision and a lot of cushion and a pretty decent working capital and you're young and hungry, yeah, probably you should. There are a lot of people in craft beer have been in it for four to five to 15 to 20 years. And maybe it's a time to think about contract brewing as either succession planning or covering your ass and making sure that you've got a way to make some beer and take advantage of the value you've already created um, without necessarily jacking up your overhead, your your exposure, your risk, and you know putting even more of your house on the line on a SBA 7A loan that's floating and currently at 10 percent mm. yeah those are good points it's kind of like a rent or a lease versus buy situation right you, you lease you're contracting it out if you from the perspective of the brewery that you know wants someone to contract for them you know versus buying all this stuff and how do you um what are the what would you think about so if somebody's contemplating that say they're like all right you know i have um you know, let's take the scenario of a brewery. I'll throw this little curveball. At you. It's a, say it's a brewery that already has the assets, yeah. Um, but they're like, you know, this is just not working. Can I? How, what are the financial, you know, drivers that you might look at to say um, this would make more sense to contract? Or how would you how would you consider the starting points for for doing that kind of a assessment? Yep. So in other words, like a brand that's already at 20,000 barrels, but they feel like they could get to 40, but they just don't have the capacity at their facility, right. but they're yeah. growing. Yeah. I mean, that's an absolute perfect time to do it. You know, it's funny. I, I, over the years, like I said, I wasn't a businessman. I don't know any of the rules of thumb at the time, but as I would bump into the ceiling and scream at the universe, like, what am I supposed to do today? Somebody in this industry, as we all know and love, would be like, oh, well, this is what you should do, man. This is how it works. And so hearing from others that building and taking advantage of overhead and fixed assets is, is that kind of, you know, they call it a step uh, model. It's not smooth up. You're, you're not, you don't just go up 5 or 10%. You have to spend to get to the 50% target, and then you got to grow like crazy. So a little bit depends on how deep the pockets are, because if you're going to spend, let's say you're at 20,000, 5,000 barrels or 500 barrels, whatever it is, if you want to scale two or three or five times, do you have the cash to afford the sales reps you're going to need to then hire? Because there is no, there's not anymore a model. I mean, maybe there's a tiny version of it, but there's very few models like the way 
they did it 15 years ago where you could just have five sales reps and they just manage growth, you know, um, stone and dogfish and Allagash and it's just unbelievable success stories. But to get that growth these days, you got to have a new sales rep and you have to pay them a fair amount. You got to incentivize the wholesalers. You got to have a great marketing team. There just isn't that like put the beer at the dock and sell more of it, except for a very small number of amazing, amazing success stories, which you know we know Trillium and Treehouse and a handful of others, which have done an incredible job. But you can't base your business on them. They're the lightning in the bottle. They're the exception to any rule that any of the rest of us live in our own realities, right? Um, so I think when you're at a stage, uh, a lot of it depends on um, what your personal goals are and what your family's goals are and what your investors' goals are, because that's the stuff that everybody says it over and over and over, right? What do you really want to do? Well, what do you really want to do? What do you really want? And you're like any entrepreneur, especially brewers, you're like, man, what do you think I want to do? I want to make more, sell more, be more of a rock star or be more happy or have more vacation or have more stuff or more family. I mean, you want to be successful, but the question is, what are you willing to do to get there? And what's realistic? What are the resources that you have to get there? And if you're at like max human capacity, and you're at 8,000 barrels and you're kind of growing, let's say you're growing 5% or you're growing 25%, you're either going to have to hire more people, raise more money, buy more stuff, or you could, cons I think the nice thing about contract brewing is if it's done right, it's incremental cost that can allow you to grow the value of your business. Because let's remember that really the value in craft beer is not about on-premise sales. I mean, the dollars today are super valuable to your company and that's mostly where you make your profits but if you want to turn around and sell a, a tap room model brewery you're not going to get scale like sam adams can't buy you like they did with coney island and then put you into their network and all of a sudden go like oh my god you guys sell a lot of beer like you can't just take a tap room and go oh we're just going to open 400 of them whereas you can take a 22 ounce bottle based lager brand and turn it into a six pack brand with key account reps and massive chain authorizations and sell 10 times more. So I like the idea that if somebody wants to grow value for their business, they do it through wholesale these days, even though what I mean is sellable value. Um, whereas if you want a lifestyle and you want a really cool community base and you want to amazing experiences and you're really into music and art and food and dogs and babies and frisbees and stuff then the tap room model makes tons of sense i don't know that you need to really outsource it too much maybe you find somebody who makes your core lager and your core session ipa so that you can make the fun stuff on site and somebody else you know you just you're like look at that we're up 20 percent this year on premise and we gave ourselves 30% of our production back for special one-off, you know, super cool beers. And we outsourced our, you know, kind of the five and a half percent American pills and our session IPA. So I think the outsourcing is really potentially valuable. Um, it's good for the market. Um, not every single person needs to do every single thing. I've, I've been certainly, um, 
I've talked to lots of people like if you don't do every single thing, you're not real. And that's fine. I, if people want to do that, I totally get it. But, you know, let's be realistic. Like every single brewery doesn't, the brewery owner doesn't do every single beer label. They don't do all the graphic design. They don't build their own website. They don't make their own insurance plan. They don't do the, you know, they don't do their own sewer work. Like you outsource things in this industry. And it's just a question of what you're good at, how much, how many resources you have and what you want to spend your time on. And then be the most authentic, amazing, creative, passionate um, advocate for those things that you can. And uh, I'm desperately trying to make a living and have some, how hard could it be, right, Gary? I mean, come on. <laughs> it's a piece of cake. So if somebody's, so it sounds like you're bullish on contract brewing. What would um, somebody's thinking about this? Like, what are the, what are the things, what's maybe like a first starting point? If somebody's going to do the due diligence, like what are the yeah. things you've got to get right? Yeah. And then maybe what are some things that you're like, oh, yep, I screwed that up. To, you know, just lessons learned relative yeah. to the contract room side. Well, the first thing is that people cannot think, oh, I mean, I got this a lot. They're like, oh, contract room, you just call a guy and get more beer. You're like, okay, yeah, okay, right. Call a guy. So you know, you still have to have your licenses straight. I mean, you can't just walk into a brewery and ask somebody to make you beer and turn around and sell anything. So getting your compliance straight um, is enormously important. And I've certainly been on both sides of that. Um, and that's huge. So spending extra time on what that means, because for people who don't understand what that means, it's state by state, oftentimes um, very complex, depending on what's going on. And it can be a real problem if, if you if you get going and it takes off, it turns into bigger problems. And if it doesn't take off at all, um, then you don't really have anything. I mean, your business isn't worth anything. It doesn't, if you don't have your, your model straight. So, you know, a lot of it is just networking and talking there. Luckily, man, I just can't, you know, when, when we were starting out in the mid nineties, contract brewing was a dirty word. You know, Sam Adams was doing it. Pete's Wicked Ale was doing it. And they were the, by far the most successful, largest craft brewers in the country. But they also had, you know, Sam Adams was started by a, a Harvard graduate, a lawyer and MBA. I mean, a totally different level of reality, than uh, level of experience than the rest of us had. So I, um, I, I made lots of mistakes and was very confused for many years. And, um, and even later, it's, it's confusing and it's complicated. So doing extra due diligence is enormously important. And, and, you know, the state liquor authorities in each state, depending on who picks up the phone or who responds on the email may or may not be the answer. Like I got lots of wrong answers when I was starting in San Francisco because contract brewing is different. It's that you, they know if you open a brewery, this is what you do when you're like, well, I'm going to buy some beer from this brewery and then I'm going to sell it to maybe my friends, maybe the bar, maybe a grocery store, maybe another bar, maybe I'll open a tap, tap room, maybe, maybe, maybe. And there's a lot of gray areas there, which governments don't love gray area. Um, so extra due diligence is super important. And then there's so many resources now. I mean, your podcast, um, obviously they can just email you and hire you as a consultant and you can tell them exactly what to do and you can sub out to me and I'll give you some cautionary tales. So that's one option. Um, shameless pitch for Carrie Shumway, ladies and gentlemen. So um, the other way is to go to any one of the, I mean, Craft Beer Professionals has great uh, content about contract brewing. 
the Brewers Association um, has great content content about uh, contract brewing. Um, there are lots of other resources on probrewer.com. There's conversations about it. There's companies that are listed for it. So, but it, it's, you kind of got to educate yourself. I don't know. I think it's a, it's a little bit of a tricky place. There are a lot more people who just go, oh, I'm going to open a brewery. And then you read that pamphlet and go through that enormous amount of learning, but it's a much more well-trodden path. Mm. And, um, you know, there's, there's 9,000 of those examples. And then there's, you know, a few hundred contract brewing examples. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Good. Yeah. So do the due diligence, ask around. Um, I think it's a good point you made about outsourcing. It's like, it's, you know, you got to think about what, I think that's a good, good question to ask is what are you, Hey, what do you want to do? What are you best at? And if it's sales and marketing, then, you know, what, what are you, a lot of folks, you know, that I talk to anyway, that's like brewing. Well, that's the core of what we do. What I, why would I outsource that? But I think the question becomes, you know, what is, what do the economics of it look like? Right. Cause do you want to buy all this stuff? Cause that's no joke. You know, you buy all this stuff, you borrow money to do so, and then you got to pay it back. And <laughs> it's yes. the paying back that gets challenging. Back. That's true. So those are all, uh, yeah. Things to consider yeah. in the, Doing yeah, that. I mean, when I when we owned the brewery, you know, so we built a brewery is forty thousand square feet in upstate New York. It started at twenty thousand, and then we expanded, took over the other half of the warehouse. Started with fourteen thousand barrels of capacity. We doubled the cellar. We bought um, a bunch of extra two hundred barrel fermenters, and then I worked out a deal with a friend of mine, and we got all his fifty barrel fermenters, and so we ended up with about thirty eight thousand barrels of capacity. And, you know, it was a $4 million. Uh, well, it cost us, it cost us three point, maybe two or four to build the first 14,000 barrels. And then it cost 400 grand to double it just for more fermenters. And we already had a bigger glycopol system. We already had a bigger boiler. We already had utilities in place, but you know, if you, if you're the, the much the cool, I loved seeing the way Rob Todd did it at Allagash when I went up there, when I, we were thinking about it and he's like, first we built this and then we maxed it out. And then we went over here and spent a little more and then we had to invest in that. And then a little more, I mean, you've seen um, from the stories, like, you know, there's stories of, of breweries going to even, you know, 10 or 20,000 barrels. It can easily get to $10 million pretty quickly. And if you're trying to, if you're ever talking anything like a hundred thousand barrels, you're talking, you know, these days you're talking tens and tens and tens, if not a hundred million dollars. Mm -hmm. So, you know, there are deep pockets in this industry and there are brands that deserve that kind of investment. Um, and they're amazing. And I'm always just blown away by them. And I'm so impressed and, and proud of what they've accomplished. And, um, and then there's, you know, 8,600 of us, that were somewhere below 10,000 barrels. I mean, we were at 30 when we were also contract growing, but it's, um, I loved the, having the stainless and it was very, it felt good and, and it was impressive. And I loved showing people, you open the door and they'd go, oh my God, what is this? And, you know, we'd have parties in the brewery and, and festivals and it was really cool. Um, but I like sales and marketing and I like, kind of honestly i kind of like going to other people's places and you know going to their bar and bringing my beer and having an amazing time at their place and then going to somebody else's place the next day or going to another city or another state 
And so if you're a real home, I mean, some of it, I know this sounds weird, but a lot of what I've been doing with customer or with clients is almost therapy. It's like, I've been calling it craft beer therapy. You know, it's more than just what do you want to do? Because that any one of us can't really figure that out. But what kind of a person are we? Are we the kind of person who needs to go to the same place every day and grow that over time and feel really connected to that geography and that, that building and that place? Um, you know, I've moved all over the country and, and I'm more nomadic by nature and I, I'm good. I like that. So to me, it was a fun experiment and um, some of it was by necessity and some of it was by choice. But I like the idea of being able to go to somebody else's brewery and play games there and drink their beers and then go to the next bar and, and go to the next state and go to the next city. So a little bit of it is finding your disposition and, and just digging into the whole, you know, what do you really want to do? That's a really complicated question. It's much more nuanced and, and than anybody really takes time to think about, especially because we're all like, beer people We're like what i don't want to talk about it i'm like what the hell man i love this beer i love this crew everybody's all good let's just make some beer and party it out and rock it out and just rock it out and then you're like three years in five years in 15 years in 25 years in you're like but what do you really want to do well it changes too right you have an idea of what you want to do and then you do it and you're like well i guess that wasn't it you know i think a lot of people can do, can do it in reverse and say what do you what is it that you don't want you know, what, yeah, are, what are the things you, point. yeah. And then you can kind of work, work it backwards. And I think very often they'll ask the question, like, what is it, you know, what does success look like? Right. When you're, so if you, you fast forward, whatever time, one, three, five years, you know, you're sitting there, what does it feel like? What does it look like? What do you, what do you envision? And, um, and then kind of, kind of build it up from there. But a lot of times it is, you just have to do it. You have to say, this is what I think I want. You do it. And, you, and then you kind of learn along the way and you refine it. Yeah. So that's obviously the benefit of experience. And unfortunately, there's, there's very often not a, not a shortcut to that, right? You got to kind of, you got to kind of go through it and try it and see what, what works and what doesn't. That's, that's a profound question you are asking today in my uh, mid fifties, my beginning of my mid fifties, not quite there yet. But, um, you know, when I was in my twenties and thirties, especially in my thirties, actually, because in my twenties, it was one type of experiment and, 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 and I didn't know enough to know what that experiment was. It was just like, I want this thing to exist. And I really thought of it as almost like an art project. And it wasn't until my mid thirties. And honestly, I, I coattailed, I'll tell anybody, everybody's heard these stories from me, but I just coattailed the hell out of Sam at Dogfish and Greg at Stone and Rob and Adam Avery and Tommy. I was like, Vinny, you guys are my heroes. You I mean you're my age, but you're my heroes, and you knew exactly what you wanted to do. You are doing the coolest, best version of it in the world. I wonder if I could do some tiny version of some little smidge of that. And luckily, my business model with my ridiculous distribution, because it was a you know Jewish beer, it was like there weren't enough Jews in any market to drink beer to keep me afloat. So I had to be in all these different markets. Um, and then all of a sudden extreme beer just blew up and I was like, and that's the beer I liked. I never liked, I mean, I never drank light lagers. I didn't, you know, when we were in high school and stuff, we drank, you know, light lagers, but in my twenties, I, you know, I lived in San Francisco. It was like Sierra anchor, all the red ales, the amber ales you could possibly find porters and stouts. That was what I liked. So by the time extreme beer took off, I was, I was a dream 
for me. And um, so that was just so meaningful. And being able to participate in that, in that kind of golden age where beers had any definition you could come up with, if you could justify making it and selling it and having relationships. Um, and, and I just was, you know, that was my door to door era. Um, and I just felt like that was a reason for being passionate about your business. And if you can do a good enough job and hustle hard enough, you could make it work. These days, every nook and cranny of the country has amazing breweries now. I mean, I don't, I'm not a complainer about that. And I'm not a complainer about like, oh, you know, well, not everybody has good beer. And you're like, well, dude, there's 9,000 breweries. When there were 2,000 breweries, there was still beer that maybe you didn't think was as good either. And there's a lot more. But the, the challenge now is much more complicated. I mean, you can't just make a beer. We made a beer in Saratoga Springs. We put it on trucks and they went to 40 states and we just sold more of it if it was cool and amazing and unique. And at that point, usually high alcohol and pretty expensive. And, um, and then I would drive to every place and talk about it. I'd hand sell every case of beer in Seattle and Portland and Tampa and everywhere in between. These days, you can't do that. You have to have a unique reason or you have, for, you have to have a unique reason for your beers to exist. And you have to tell that story in a super compelling manner. Or you have to be really local and have your shit buttoned up because you can lose money so quickly in every stage of the brewery, every stage of your P&L, every stage of your balance sheet, so easy to lose money. And so that's one of the things, I mean, you and I talked about this a couple of weeks ago is like trying to get my clients to lose less money. Um, <laughs> you know, it's kind of a weird superpower, but it, I have noticed I, I do kind of have it for the moment because I look in the places where they're maybe not paying attention or maybe look at the thing that's right in front of them and go, you have too much staff or you have the wrong margins on your products or your pricing is wrong or you're tap room is you know inefficient or and we try to we try to get them to lose less money starting tomorrow and then figure out how to sell more eventually but you got to write the ship sometimes and mm -hmm. i've been through a lot of cautionary tales myself so I, I can kind of it's a lot easier to see it in somebody else than it is to see it in yourself well that's absolutely true and i let's dig in on that because i think that's super important i mean you had mentioned earlier you know the 8600 of us that are not doing you know tons and tons of volume are the ones that those folks are struggling you know some are doing fine and and quite a few are struggling and i think that i know when you said that it resonated with me and i think it will resonate with the folks listening is you know how can i lose less money it's not the most optimistic framing of the question but it's it's yeah. very practical yeah. um for someone that's losing a good deal of money, the goal, you know, goal number one is to lose less. So you mentioned some, some interesting things here, like not necessarily knowing where to look. And you gave a few examples. How, how do you approach something like that? Like, do you have a, is it, is it gut? Is it process or what, what information are you looking at? How do you, how do you tackle that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's been really interesting as I've gone through some of my different clients and, um, I was hesitant at first. And then eventually I said, listen, we're, we're going to spend, you know, we'll go over it together. We're going to talk to you what you think your problems are. And everybody knows pretty much what their problems are. It's part of it is just, we're losing money. That's their biggest problem. Or we have too much staff, or I'm not sure what to do about our debt. 
um, or our brands are, we get on the shelf and they're not turning and we don't know what to do about it. So usually the owners know what's going on, but it's too hard to make sometimes the hard change, the hard decisions, or there's stuff where it's just like they haven't been to the other side of it. So what I, what I got into the habit of doing is I just said, listen, this is going to be boring, but let's pull out your balance sheet, just like we're, you would do if you were really, really serious about your financials. And we're going to go through every line item on your balance sheet, make sure that you understand what it is. Because a lot of owners are like, man, I'm just killing it. We're making kick-ass beers. My hazies are fucking tearing it up. Everybody loves it. And the sales guy is like, dude, the more I sell, the more popular we are. And at the end of the year, the CPA is like, dude, you just, the more you sell, the more money you lose because you're spending, you know, $300 a a barrel on beer and you're selling it for, you know, $380 a barrel for beer and you don't have enough margin to run your company or you're literally losing money on beers. Like your costs are more than you're selling it for. So we go line by line. And um, I mean, it could be anything from, you know, a big part of it is making sure that they know what they're doing. And I'm no expert on this. I learned the hard way. What are your cogs? What are your cost of goods? In other words, um, what are what are the inputs into the costs? And these days, you know, a lot of people are on Ecos or Ollie or fill in the blank beer 30. But just because it's software doesn't mean you know what it is. And it doesn't mean you know how to analyze it. Um, you know, you still got to actually understand it. And so we go through um, what are the costs of making your beer? What is the cost of selling your beer? What is the cost of marketing your beer? What is the cost associated with everything else? You know, some people have a sweetheart deal on rent, so they think they're doing pretty well. Well, it turns out you're at, you know, 50% of uh, fair market value on rent. If you want to sell that business, now all your profits are gone or turns out somebody thinks they're doing really well on, um, you know, shipping to out of state wholesalers, but they're not taking into consideration trucking compliance, um, additional packaging, sometimes um, bill backs, uh, you know, market spends travel, you know, they're, they're just, the buckets get very overflowing very quickly um, at a brewer's P and L. And so it's a little hard to tell which is which. And I get that a lot. I get a lot of questions. Where am I supposed to put CO2? I mean, is where am I supposed to put insurance? Where am I supposed to put utilities for the electricity for the tasting room, which is kind of part of our warehouse for our production? Um, and so we go through all of that. Then we just shred it. I mean, I was so proud of a couple of my, one of my guys one day just came back to me and was like, you'll never believe it. I got got a 50% credit on our garbage fees because we had had this extra thing and this other stuff. And I was like, dude, that's righteous. That's bottom line. That's just like straight to lose less money. You know, your CO2 went up and they were giving you all these upcharges last summer. Well, did you go back and argue that now CO2 is down and they need to actually credit you for some of that and give you a much lower rate moving forward? Um, Hop storage fees. Holy shit. I mean, you could lose you could lose a sales rep on hop storage fees if you're not careful. Um, so a million little things and insurance, is it based on the right business model? Um, you know, that cost can get really wacky. Um, can, are there things you can outsource, you know, bookkeeping, um, social media? Um, there's, 
production, tons of production fat that exists um, that brewers are just like, man, I'm really busy. I hear this all the time. Do you want me to do, so you come to them and say, I want you to do some cost cutting. And they're like, okay, but I'm working all the time. You're not exactly compensating me for overtime yet. I'm expected to be here and be, I'm part of the team and I believe in it and I want this to happen. Do you want me to do my job or do you want me to sit at a desk and try to figure out how to save money? And the owner has to say, yeah, yeah, I want you to do both of those (laughs) or (laughs) I'm going to work right next to you and we're going to do it together. And the brewer's got to be like, oh, God, all right, fine, I'll try. And, you know, you come up with incentives for them to do that and you support them, promises and, you know, cajoling and, you know, having a few extra beers and and maybe you have to pay them a little more too. But you might pay them more and they might save you a lot more. Because at a brewery, you could you can lose money. Utilities, materials, process. I mean, in a heartbeat, you can lose so much money. Mm-hmm. And um, and in a bunch of heartbeats over the course of a month or two or three, you can save a lot of money. Yeah. You know what I think is interesting is, the, and those are all really good tips. Thank you for that and, and starting points for people. And, and it's hard work, right? You got to go through it. And yeah. um, I think what's interesting is that <clears throat> a lot of times, you know, the brewery owners will know there's two buckets. One is they have no idea. They really don't know where to start. The other bucket is I got a pretty good idea what I need to do. And I just, I don't know how to execute it because to your point, like I can't cut my production staff. They're already telling me how busy they are. You know, I can't do this. I can't do that. And and the actual implementation and execution of it seems impossible Um, because either they're just, let's just say it, maybe they're just too nice uh, or they're really worried that by trying to fix one problem, they create another. Yeah. Or worried Um, everybody will quit. Everybody will quit because they, uh, the they had a hell of a time getting the last one. It, all of these things, you know, I think there's, we, we create these stories in our head. Any, any tips on how to, is this sort of a mindset issue? Like how does, how does one overcome? Cause, cause often what you'll see is there's a problem, you know, you're driving towards the cliff cause you're losing money all the time. Yeah. You, you don't want to do this other thing because you think maybe you'll drive over the cliff, cliff faster. But the point is you're going over that cliff. How do you, how have you thought about that or in and executed those things? Yeah, that's just so painful. (laughs) Just listening to you describe this gives me heart palpitations. I mean, you know, we, for so long, everybody was just growing. What what happened to that? You know, we just wanted to grow. It's all good. We're growing. And I had a bunch of clients who were like, you know, we grew for the first three or four years we were in business. And I'm like, well, you better have, I mean, you were losing money and growing. So one of the things I kind of help people think about is like, when you're a kid, you know, there's that kid who buys everybody like Slurpees after school and, and buys people candy and kind of maybe, and then in high school, like has all the parties and buys all the liquor and then, you know, whatever it is, you're kind of buying your friends for a while. Mm-hmm. And that's almost how you have to look at growth when you're losing money. You're essentially buying business that you're not earning yet. You may, you certainly want to eventually earn it. But you can't look back on the time where you were growing because you were spending too much. That's not uh, the time to look back on. Luckily, there are breweries, too, that were profitable. And and they're like, no, we were profitable and growing. Um, So how do we get back to that? And I think that getting back to the profitable and growing um, a lot of times is probably pretty 
like you kind of have described it to me before, like cutting, cutting the fat, but not the meat. Like we used to be profitable and growing. So we hired two more sales reps, another driver. We doubled our product, our, you know, tasting room staff. Um, we invested way more in social media and, you know, Google ad spends. And we all went to CBC twice and, you know, all of a sudden you're like, oh shit. Yeah. We were growing 15% a year and profitable, but we blew all the money. So can we, can we get some back for ourselves? And I think that's totally doable. Um, a painful one, which I've experienced several times is we were growing a lot, but we were losing money. And, but, but we're supposed, our projections say we're going to break even in two years. We just need to grow another 35% a year, year over year, but we're flat or down. Mm. So now we have to grow 100% in two years. And then we have to grow 300% in three years. And you're like, that's a real problem. Mm. And um, so I've come across some clients who there's an there's a couple of obvious things because they could maybe get to, to break even with some painful decisions. And those are usually layoffs. That could be uh, some more painful stuff. But sometimes it's reorganizing debt um, you know, maybe you're on a 10 year amortized, fully amortized. And is there some possibility that you could get a different debt solution? So you're not, so your cash flow is at least a little better. Um, owning or renting, that could be something different. Um, your, your ownership model, like maybe getting an investor is, is really your only solution. And that, that could be a, a good way to maybe save some of that cash that you're hemorrhaging. But then you just got to be realistic. And a lot of times, you know, we were spoiled. The brewery owners who started in the 90s and 2000s, nobody gave a shit about us or wanted our beer. So everybody was just a hustler. Like, nobody, it didn't occur to anybody that it was a, <laughs> it wasn't sexy and a profitable business. It was just fun. And it was our art project. And we thought we we're going to make a go of it. The last 10 years, people are like, oh, it's a, it's a growing industry. It's a great business. I mean, I see a lot of value. I mean, you hear over and over again, people who have mortgaged houses or sold their businesses and gone into craft beer and bought stainless steel and gotten places and, and then the market got saturated and the market is flat. And so therefore, anybody in your neighborhood or your state who's growing means that you are going to either grow less than them and they're going to take your growth um, or you're going to have to grow and take your neighbor's growth. But if it's a flat market, there aren't. It, it's just math. So it's been really hard to have those conversations with people when they're losing money. Um, but I feel like we can get to the bottom of it. A lot of times it's about who the owners are and what their resources are and what their short, medium term plans are. Um, succession planning is super important. If they're doing it because they think their kids are going to take it over, well, that's a whole different conversation than if they're, you know, 56, their kids aren't interested. They used to have corporate jobs. And they were making 180 grand a year, and now they're losing 180 grand a year and not paying themselves. Mm. So I think that there, if you can get to the bottom, it's almost back to that same thing we talked about. What do you really want to do? Um, and the answer can't just be, I just want to stop losing money. The answer has to be like a strategic vision. Do, do you want to keep this business? Do you want to sell this business? Do you want to close this business? I, for a little while, I thought of calling, I, I don't, you know, I don't really don't, we've talked about this. I don't really have a real consulting firm or anything. I mean, it's just me. I'm talking to clients and 
talking to friends, but I was thinking for a little while of calling my little consulting practice um, Kiss, Mary Kill because it really is the question. There's a lot of people that got in. I mean, you know, 9,000 brewers, 7,000 started in the last eight years or nine years. And do they want to just dabble? Do they, do they get into it because they thought it would be cool and it'd be fun? I had a client in the end, I was like, you guys should totally start this business, should absolutely plan to lose all of your money and you should plan to minimize your effort and maximize your fun. That was a business model. If these guys, four guys, five guys, maybe they're going to spend five grand a year going to breweries and standing in line and getting these amazing beers that they love and they want to do it themselves. They're all numbers. Great. Maximize it out. Don't think it's going to turn into something. There's five of you and you're all 40 something. Um, and none of you are wholesalers and none of you were the brewer at other half or dogfish. I mean, this is not going to happen, but you could have a lot of fun and you can align your goals. Um, but I think that, you know, when people are losing a lot of money, you've got to dig really deeply and see what's your, what's your horizon for time? What are your resources that you have? Could you cut bait? Um, and I mean, we both know this and we're, I'm guilty of it all the time. We think everybody thinks their business is worth something. Well, I'm only losing, you know, 80 grand a year on 400 grand in sales, but I've got this really cool place. And if somebody else could sell barbecue and pinatas and watch, you know, video and video games and get into the baseball stadium and get into Whole Foods and get into distribution and, and we could double our business, it's worth a million dollars. And you're like, it's currently literally worth zero dollars. I mean, you're losing money. So um, you could sell it for scrap. Um, or if you have a long enough time window, then change the model and stop losing so much and let it ride. I mean, if you've got some money in the bank and don't lose it as fast, if you could double or triple the amount of time you have to worry about before you run out of money, things come up. We're, dude, I'm so, you're probably the same way. I'm so astounded at how much punishment how much pain craft brewers are willing to endure to make these amazing beers and to share them with our communities. Um, we always endure. We, we endure too long actually, mm -hmm. and too much oftentimes, but um, we're also adaptable as hell and we're pirates and we want to go get cool shit done. So give yourself some time, lose less money and wait for opportunities that could really turn it around. I mean, maybe there's a building that's going to be built down the street from you that's bringing some unbelievable resource and you're going to turn around your retail or maybe your wholesalers is going through a really hard time and you're going to get a new wholesaler that'll be much better or they're going to get bought or sold or maybe you are on the cusp of getting into some really cool chain authorizations or maybe you do have an opportunity to have a, a themed beer with one of the biggest players in your market um, or maybe you'll just figure it out a little bit better. And you'll stop losing so much money and paying twice as much for certain things and, and make twice as much on other things. Thank you for listening to the Craft Brewery Financial Training Podcast, where we combine beer and numbers so that you can improve financial results in your brewery. For more resources, tools, guides, and online courses, visit craftbreweryfinancialtraining.com. And don't forget to sign up for the world-famous Craft Brewery Financial Training Newsletter. Until next time, Get out there and improve financial results in your brewery today.